0: Can you see the bunny? It's like right there in the trail. Where? Oh, straight ahead. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It's a bunny. It's a little tan thing. This is B-Side, and I'm Tamara Keith with Renee Gattel. Hello. And we are on a walk on a trail around my neighborhood. And this is part two of the life crepuscular, dusk. The dusk, the twilight, the evening, the end of the day. And we actually have here a list of critters that are, this is from Wikipedia, so I don't vouch for it, but we have a list of critters that are crepuscular mammals. And crepuscular means? That they thrive and- Wait, the bunny just moved. There he is. (laughs) Thrive in the hours just before dawn and just before dusk. And these mammals include the cat, the dog, the deer, the rabbit, mm-hmm. and so that's, that's our bunnies. Yep. And actually, there are a whole lot of other mammals that thrive at this time, including people like us uh, that sort of rush to get things done before the dark. And massive mammals too, much bigger than us, that
1: weigh a lot more that hang out in zoos.
0: Andrea Seabrook went to the National Zoo in Washington, D.C., and introduces us to a whole slew of crepuscular
2: animals. We're outside of the giraffe area right now, and I'm with my friend, Luke Clippinger. Hi. And it is dusk. You probably hear the sound of tourists all around. It is a beautiful day in Washington, even for the middle of winter. And so at dusk, there are quite a few people here, and they haven't taken the giraffe inside yet. giraffe is gambling around its pen in this amazing way.
3: He's kicking up his legs really high. I'm wondering why he's doing that.
2: (laughs) Well, maybe it has something to do with... Like a giraffe step class or something (laughs) like that. Maybe it has something to do with um, it being dusk. It could. From what I understand, animals are more active in the wild than in the zoo at the crepuscule, the dawn and the dusk. And so we came to the National Zoo here to find out if that's true.
4: <laughs>
2: wow, I've never been backstage at the zoo.
4: Oh. <laughs> Tell <laughs> me your name. Craig Zaffo. And what do you do? I'm a biologist here at the zoo.
2: What happens at the zoo at dusk?
4: Well, in this area of the zoo uh, where we keep cheetahs and a lot of hoof stock around the park, things get very active around dusk. Cheetahs are one of the few cat species, if not the only, who are primarily diurnal. Uh, So they are active more during the day than your average lion or tiger would be. So these guys get up and get a lot more active around dusk and dawn.
2: Let me ask you a kind of a funny and philosophical question, as a, as a biologist. What is what does do the times of dusk and dawn mean
4: to an animal? Wow, uh, <laughs> that is pretty philosophical. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Without yeah, exactly. Without really asking them, there's no way to know. Um, but I would think that these guys just they react the same way that you or I would. It's cooler. Um, The birds are more active. Things are just happening at dusk and dawn. The animals who are native to this area start to come out. The deer around Rock Creek start to make more appearances. Even if we don't see them, you know, the zoo sits right next to Rock Creek and the cheetah enclosure is right next to a big wooded area that goes into Rock Creek. So I'm sure deer are active. I would imagine raccoons and all kinds of things are happening that you or I wouldn't necessarily be aware of because our our human senses are <laughs> you know not as keen uh, that the cats probably react to to some degree and then you know even though I said cheetahs are primarily diurnal they're still cats and they sleep a- the bulk of the day so it's kind of like nap time after nap time what do you do you get up and you play and so these guys the cubs particularly around dusk and dawn are up racing around um, and I think it's just it's like a if I can go outside of my <laughs> box and just say that it's like a biological clock is on and it's you know at dusk and dawn let's let's get up and moving so I think I, that's that's those are my thoughts. <laughs> well, thanks so
2: much for talking sure. to B side. No
4: problem.
5: sounds like that. There's three different species of zebra in the world, and this, this is the Grevy's, and it's the rarest, and they're the only ones that sound like that. Like, <laughs> like a very angry donkey. A very, very angry
2: donkey. <laughs>
5: he's, a, he's actually more closely related to the ancestor of the donkeys than he is to the horses. Interesting. Oh, so, yeah. uh,
2: What's your name? Kate Foltz. And you're a zookeeper, yes. right? Yes. I just think that's the most wonderful thing. It's like one of those jobs that kids want to be, right? Yes, it is. <laughs> including me. <laughs> Does Nathan do this every night? Uh, he, he gets really
5: uh, very more active in the evenings. He'll, he's been known to take his food ball out into the yard and throw it against the fence at the cheetahs around f- 4 4.30, which is when he comes in. He's, he's ready to come in for the night, and he tends to uh, get a little noisier and a little more playful. He also does it in the mornings, too, Okay. when we can always tell. Sometimes I start out in another area checking house before I come back in here, and I always know when the first person has come back in in the morning at 630 in the morning because Nathan sounds off, and it's his good morning to the first person he sees, basically.
2: I guess the whole zoo knows, huh? Well,
5: the whole top of the zoo knows when Nathan sees somebody, yeah. I've heard him as far away as, as the birdhouse, which is probably a good quarter mile away.
2: So tell me a little bit about what you think, why why, um, Nathan and other animals, some other animals, are most active at morning and at at dawn and dusk? A
5: lot of times it depends on on what their natural habits are. Like our main wolves out here, that are probably laying around sleeping right now, will start to get up within the next 20 minutes or half hour probably as the sun goes down. In the wild they hunt at dawn and dusk, because the animals that they are hunting are more active at dawn and dusk. Um, Small rodents and things will come out. So if there's more prey available, that's when they'll come out. Uh, They'll also eat insects and things, and insects tend to be more active at dawn and dusk. I think there's higher humidity then, so the animals that are affected by humidity tend to be more active then. Birds that are hunting the insects are more active at that time, so there's more birds available for things like wolves to eat. And with the herbivores, especially some of the desert animals like Nathan and our scimitar horned oryx, there's a higher moisture content to their food the grasses and the bushes and things absorb moisture overnight so there's a lot more moisture available for them at dawn there's a lot of dew on all the vegetation so that's the best time to to go out and eat when there's more moisture available for them they don't even have to find a water source because everything's there in their food already
2: thank you so much You're for very talking welcome. to us <laughs> What do you think Luke how about that um, zebra?
3: That zebra was the loudest thing I've ever heard in my life.
2: I thought it was going to get me. It,
3: it was about ready to rip off Andrea's hand.
2: It really was. I mean, I thought it was, it was, it ran at me and then made that sound that was just like,
3: it really was showing off. It really was showing off completely. It was, it was completely, yeah, doing it, I think for the microphone, completely for the microphone.
2: Animals really are, I mean, I really think animals are more active at dusk. If you're an animal, what is there other than the turn of the day? You don't have years, months, and all these sort of human constructions of of noting the passage passage of time. You're left with just, I guess, seasons, and then in the much smaller scale, the day.
3: Well, and I think you've got to be more, there's some things you just have to do if you're an animal. You have to eat, and you have to sleep, and it's pretty straightforward not that animals just eat and sleep but i mean it's not like they're writing poetry i guess at the same time either they can't do that at night or anything like that that's really deft isn't it but (laughs) i just think i think that it's it's just you know there's something in all of us that makes us want to get done what we need to get done when the sun's going down or get going a little bit faster when the sun's going up that's what i think take it for what it's worth
2: Thanks for coming to the zoo with me today, Luke.
3: It was fun. We (laughs) should do this again.
2: (laughs) The wild Luke makes sound dust.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That story came to us from Andrea Seabrook. This is B-Side. I'm Tamara Keith, and I am out on a walk in the twilight with Renee Gattel. Renee, look, look, there's two owls over there. Can you see them? They're so tiny. But they I mean, They must be like six inches high. They are definitely owls though. There's just these tiny little owls.
1: I know, like their head is rotating in 360. It's kind of creepy.
0: <laughs> so Andrea's story really points out that there are just a ton of animals that, that are different just at this time. Kind of like um, puppies and dogs.
1: Kind of like dogs. I don't know if you've ever noticed. I mean, you have Jezebel, your dog. Um, A lot of times dogs just go nuts at the end of the day. Like I have a puppy. She goes crazy. I call it the crazies. She just bolts all around the house. Gets all uppity and excitable. And what time of day is it? Eight, seven, eight, nine. When the sun's setting. Exactly, yeah. I mean, and she just goes ballistic. I mean, you'd think that she was on puppy uppers or something.
0: We are walking right now along a golf course that happens to be in my somewhat odd subdivision. And there are people out here playing golf, I think rushing to uh, capture the light. The sun's quickly setting.
1: The shadows are monstrously long. They're just never-ending, the shadows. And we probably don't have much
0: more daylight at all. And the grass at the golf course just has this sort of vibrancy. The kind that you'd only get at this time of day. In Hollywood, they have a, a name for this time. What is it? Golden Hour. The Golden Hour. What does that mean? It, it's when the light just hits things just right and gives them this perfect glow. And people look better on screen.
1: So this is probably when they do a lot of their work.
0: Yes. And Lerka Bosnak
6: spoke with some photographers about this time. In the movie Field of Dreams, at the end, when Kevin Costner finally gets to have a catch with his dad on the baseball field.
7: Hey, Dad?
6: You want to have a catch? The golden corn, the warm glow on Kevin Costner's smiling face. In movie making, that's called Magic Hour, the time just before and after the sunset. Patrick Cady is a director of photography, he worked on the movie Girl Fight which won the dramatic grand jury prize, the big prize at Sundance. Since then, he's worked on lots of independent films. He says everyone on a movie knows what makes that time, well, magic.
8: I did a Western recently, and and when you're out in New Mexico standing on a butte and looking at the sun going down or coming up, and everyone's thinking, oh, we gotta get this, we gotta grab it. And they're still excited after years and years of working in the business that they're still excited about trying to capture that fleeting moment. And then there's this great feeling, there's always these wonderful smiles when you pull your eye off the eyepiece or you, the operator pulls their eye off the eyepiece and says, well, that, that was beautiful. And then the whole crew kind of goes home knowing that they somehow got lightning in a bottle, as it were.
6: I found a director named Todd Kessler in the throes of editing his first movie. It's an independent film about teenage love called Keith.
9: We had one sequence, one uh, big dolly shot of uh, uh, our main character walking out to his truck and we shot it first at at magic hour and it looked great. But then we had a scene afterwards that, that happens directly afterwards driving in the truck, and so then we were locked into shooting that scene (laughs) at Magic Hour too, and that had to be on a process trailer with, uh, you know, driving around uh, L.A. with, with motorcycle cops following us. It was a race against the clock.
6: Todd got 40 minutes to finish Magic Hour that day, but if you're further north or not in Southern California, it's more like the magic 20 minutes, which is all the more impressive when you consider that the thing that costs the most money making a film is time. And sometimes filmmakers spend a lot of time waiting. Waiting to work during the time of day, most people want to stop working and watch the sun go down. But they do that because that time of day holds meaning for people. Toni Kalem has written it into movies she's directed, like her first one.
10: And there was a scene that took place on the back porch of my main character's house that was played by Lily Taylor, where her... The guy she's been obsessed with, who's played by Guy Pierce, shows up at her house. Why was it me you came to?
5: You and me really had some fight that night.
6: I asked you a question. I heard you. Have you
2: ever answered one? Had a real conversation, one that goes back and forth like it's supposed to? Don't
5: you ever smile?
6: Of course I do.
5: You weigh on my head.
10: It was the first time he expressed his longing for her and returned the obsession she had for him was returned. It's the first time he attempted to make a contact with her and where he sort of reaches out and almost touches her. And so it's the first time there's really a connection between these two people. And it just felt like the light was everything because it is kind of a magical, transient moment between them, which is exactly what magic hour is. It's that pink sky. It's that moment before the sun disappears. Such a teeny little sliver of time. And I felt like that moment between them was also this teeny sliver of a connection that was going to take them from one kind of a relationship into another kind of relationship.
6: Tony Kalem is an actress, so she herself has waited all day for the 20 minutes when she has to emote perfectly, say her lines exactly, hit her marks, and act on cue. Now she inflicts that pressure on other actors. You
10: know, I didn't know even what those words magic hour meant, and so I feel like I probably screwed up many a director's schedule because I didn't have a clue about it. You know, I've never experienced, as a director, dealing with actors that didn't know, but I probably was horribly guilty of, like, screwing up. People's schedule because I had no
6: idea. <laughs> Emotion is one reason people shoot during the magic hour; they want to capture how people feel. But in his movie, writer and director Cameron Faye used that time of day to capture how people change.
11: The character is basically has has realized something and he's going to start something new in his life. I thought it would be nice because of the transition with the sun actually setting his life is in a transition. I thought it just went well together. And we decided to shoot it at magic hour. And uh, I've seen it, it turned out really well. I mean, we're still editing the film, but it looks beautiful, so.
6: One director loved this time of day so much, he made most of his movie at magic hour. And yes, it took forever. The guy's name is Terrence Malick. He's made movies since then. But among filmmakers, it's the movie he made in 1978 called Days of Heaven that they study, that they've seen, that they all know. Days of Heaven is the story of a love triangle during the Depression in Texas. But that's not the important part. I watched it with Cameron, and you can hear him describe what matters in the movie.
11: Like you can see, there's a close-up of these crickets right here, and the sunlight is basically hitting them right at a side angle, if at all. And the sun's setting. The, the light is orange, and it's about to turn really blue. And this is this right here is the most famous shot right before the climax of the movie. It's just this yellow haze almost, as the sun is just about gone.
6: Magic Hour doesn't last all that much longer than that. It's elusive, and filmmakers like Patrick Cady say that's precious.
8: Making a film in general is all about trying to keep sand from slipping through your fingers. Um, Magic Hour is very similar to that totally transient nature of film itself.
6: When movie makers try to keep sand from slipping through their fingers, there's no substitute for the real thing. For B-Side, I'm Larka Bosnick. The sun's going down past the pine And shadows grow long down the hill Follow the path known by heart Down to the wide open fields Now that it's
10: Twilight
6: Twilight Now that it's twilight This
0: is B-side, I'm Tamara Keith, and I am walking with Renee Gattel. And our walk has now taken us to the streets. We're off the trail. Um, and look at that, it's the, it's the first street lamp has come on. And
1: the sky has turned a really lovely shade of purple.
0: It's right around this time that in New York City, the Empire State Building is lit up. It's so pretty. And they do all different colors based on the, the season. So they do like red, white, and blue, or pink.
1: Red, white, and blue for 4th of July, pink for Valentine's Day,
0: yeah. do they do red and green for Christmas? Oh, probably. Yeah. Though I don't know what they do for Hanukkah. Blue and white? Perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> Besides David Johns, uh, met up with a guy who is in charge of creating that light show. And it's quite a light show. And he learned that it is much more challenging than, you know, say lighting up your average Christmas tree. This story is really cool.
7: A few years ago, Bill Tortorelli, the chief electrician of New York's Empire State Building, started writing a screenplay on his commute to work.
9: all handwritten. I ended up with about a thousand pages. I got a, a whole encyclopedia, and I just scribbled it all out.
7: The main character of the saga is a guy from Brooklyn, a guy who, you guessed it, is the chief electrician of the Empire State Building.
9: So he's my, my name is Bill Tortorelli, so he's Joey Torello. There's a lot in it. There's a lot of funny things in it. A lot of, every argument I ever had with my wife is in there. <laughs> everything I want to tell yeah, my gotta, mother-in-law, you gotta, you gotta it's in there. It. It's all in it, everything. The whole deal.
7: The script is filled with mobsters, murder, and limousines, a sharp contrast from the windowless basement office where Tortorelli starts his day.
9: Right now, we're in the lower lobby right now, and, and uh, we're, uh, I would say, about 60 feet. Uh, below the water line, I call it, you know. So uh, we're going up in the elevator now. We're gonna first go to 81.
7: Uh, The Empire State Building has 78 elevators. For the chief electrician, that means a lot of up and down all day.
9: Uh, We go up, I don't know, I think this elevator's going, uh, let's see, we're up to the 50th floor already. I don't know, it's, uh, Let's. I never got the reading on how fast we're traveling. Probably somewhere around 60 miles an hour, I would imagine. I have to get the, uh, the real fact on that, you know.
7: One of Tortorelli's jobs is to operate the hundreds of huge lamps that light the building in colors for holidays and special occasions. They turn on at dusk and off at midnight and can be seen from all over the city. I mean, I've been 50, 60 miles from this building out in uh,
9: Jones Beach. and uh, I spot the Empire State Building, and uh, it's, it's quite a quite a building. It's uh, I call it like a castle in the sky, you know, really built well. If you put your level on a wall and it's off, you throw the level away because uh, the building is right.
7: The building lights up in three sections. The first bank of lights is on a ledge on the 72nd floor, and the second is on the 81st. Right. Wow. Join hand?
9: Yeah, I think I got it. All right, we just opened a window and we're going to climb out onto
7: the 81st floor balcony. Tortorelli and his crew climb out a window to change the gels on some 200 floodlights that are the size of large pizzas. We're looking west right now in New Jersey at the Hudson River
9: and we're probably about 800 feet in the air.
7: It takes a crew of six about five or six hours to get the job done. Come rain, sleet, snow or anything else. We've had thousands of uh, ladybugs at
9: times just hit the building. We find them all over the place. Uh, bats, all kinds of animals. I mean, I've seen the snow go up uh, in, uh, in this area. You know, I've seen it goes left, right, and then it travels up. The, the weather system up here is, is wild, you know? So uh, also when there's migrations of certain birds, certain time of the year, the Audubon Society will call us and tell us to shut the lights because the birds are attracted to the building. Um, we do.
3: So, uh. oof.
9: I guess
7: Actually, it wasn't that windy. There are over a hundred color changes a year. On the 4th of July, the building is red, white, and blue. On Valentine's Day, it's all red. During Oscar week, it's all gold. For Betty Boop's 75th anniversary, it was red, red, and gold. For Poison Prevention Month, it's red, white, and red. Uh, I remember when Sinatra passed away, they, uh,
9: they did the building all, all blue, for blue eyes, you know, oh, for all right. blue oh, eyes. Right. Yeah, that was a nice thing. When the Pope came, we made him gold. Uh, we have all different you know, uh, national holidays for the different nations, Israel, Greece, Germany, all of them. So uh, you know, if we put the colors upside down, it could probably
7: cause an international incident. The uppermost bank of lights are the only ones that are automated. Tortorelli controls their colors by flipping switches on the 86th floor.
9: All right, we'll squeeze in with the sightseers here. Come on
4: in.
9: Now you're on an elevator with uh, a group of tourists, I guess, right? I, I don't know where they're from. Yeah, where are you guys speak from? speak English? Ireland. Ireland, they speak English. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to
7: the Empire State Building Observatory. The 86th is where the top tower of the Empire State Building begins. On the inside of its windows are hundreds of vertical fluorescent bulbs of different colors. This is the spot where Tortorelli flips a switch that changes the colors on the top of the building. It's also the spot where in Tortorelli's screenplay, Joey Torello, the Empire State Building's chief electrician, puts on a twilight light show for his daughter on the night of her wedding. Well, it's his daughter's wedding. It's the night of his daughter's wedding, so he wants
9: to give her some old surprise, so... Yeah, they get, they, she's married at this place called the Terrace on the Park. It's where the old World's Fair used to be, and it's high up above, and you can see the horizon. So he leaves the wedding, and he says, His daughter's name is Rose. He says, Rose, I'll be right back. He says, Where are you going, Dad? It's my wedding night. He says, Here's my cell phone. He says, Listen for it. He goes to the Empire State Building, and she gets all the guests out on the terrace, and he hits all the colors of the light for her wedding night, you know, so everybody sees the, the colors changing. And then, uh, and
7: then on the way down is his descent from the heights to the depths. I use it as a pivotal point. In the screenplay, Torello's elevator ride down from the top of the tower mirrors his descent into a dark and murderous mobster life. He even quits his job at the building.
9: It's a story waiting to happen, you know, in New York City, by uh, Stabling chief electrician. Writes a screenplay, you know, it's,
10: <laughs>
7: it's waiting to happen. It'll happen. But as Tortorelli himself descends in the building, there's no concomitant spiritual descent. In fact, it's just the opposite. How you doing, Aaron? You I can't feel more a uh, part of New York is to work here, I'll Down by his office 60 feet below the waterline, it feels like the top of the world. Doesn't, doesn't get any more New York than this. <laughs> right Pete, there's another Paisano. <laughs> For B-Side, I'm Dave Johns.
9: Hey George, Mr. Monahan, how are you? Good. Okay. Go
0: and it's pretty well dark out here now, which means the crepuscule is over, and so is this edition of B-Side. Our crew includes Mia Lobel, Claudine Zapp, Molly Peterson, who helped put together the whole show, Lerka Bosnak, David Johns, Rob Sachs, Andrea Seabrook, and Renee Gattel. If you want to learn more about us, check out our website, bsideradio.org. That's the letter B S I D E radio, all one word.org. Thanks for listening.